2 Samuel, we've been studying through uh, the life of David. I've enjoyed it tremendously. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. I hope as, you know, a lot of times when you come before the Old Testament, you think, oh, it's all history. I don't need to know it. But what we've found is there's been some tremendous practical application as we, you know, we're all people. Whether we lived back in the time of David or whether we're living today, we, we see the same type of struggles, the same type of things. And we've watched as David has done some amazing things for the Lord. We've seen some failures and some shortcomings as well that we like to identify with. But we've also seen him do some amazing things. I mean, after all, he's known as a man after God's own heart. He's the greatest king that the nation Israel's ever had. And, uh, you know, it starts in his life early on. You know, remember when he was uh, just a young boy and he went to fight Goliath. Everybody knows the story, right? David and Goliath. We've all heard that story at some point if you've ever been in church or Sunday school. But let me ask you this question. Did you know that there were four other giants that were fought in the Bible? Goliath isn't the only one. You know, some people speculate, well, David, you know, if you read the story in 1 Samuel 17, well, when he picked up five smooth stones, why did he pick up five stones? Some people speculate, well, in case he missed, other people say, wait a minute, Goliath had potentially four brothers. There was, there was at least five known giants in there. We're going to study those four battles. We can do it all in, in the last half of chapter 21 here. It goes rather quick. It doesn't say a lot about it. But what we'll find is as we come to verses uh, 15 through 22, some people believe that these giants are Goliath's son, sons. They may have been four sons. I personally happen to believe they're his four brothers uh, coming from a father, a giant who was also a father in the land of Gath. But as we look at verses 15 through 22, and then we're going to try to make our way through chapter 22 as well this evening, if time permits us to. But uh, in verses 15 through 22 of verse 21, we're going to see these four more battles, if you would, with giants, just like Goliath. So let's pick up in verse 15. When the Philistines were at war, Again with Israel, David and his servants with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then, well, who wants to pronounce that name? We'll just say Dave, we'll just say John. No. Ishbibanab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of those whose bron- the weight of whose bronze spear was three hundred shekels, who was bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So here we see the Philistines and the Israelites, they're doing battle again. That's been on again, off again for quite some time. The Philistines uh, are always moving in, trying to take the Israelites. The Israelites, as they took the promised land, they drove the Philistines back, all the way back up against the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, what we see is that there's a constant battle taking place here. And we read that the Philistines were at war again with David and his servants went down with him. So David goes down to do battle. Now David was a mighty warrior. There was a hit song written about him. Remember David, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. That's what all the ladies around were singing. So he had a lot of respect for, in that sense where he was known as a mighty warrior. He was known as a fighter. He was known as, as a guy who could get the job done when it came to battle. But here we see him later in life. Scholars would suggest he's up into his 60s, 65 years old maybe. He's later in life and as he comes down to do battle, what does it say? It says he grew faint. He grew faint. He's worn out. He's tired. He can't, he can't continue at the pace that he used to continue. He's coming down into his latter years. He can't keep up. You ever feel that way? <laughs> Some of the older, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't do what I did when I was 20. I can't do what I did when I was 40. I can't do it. You know, you kind of, the older you get, you look back and go 20 years ago. I could do more back then. Well, that's what's happened in David's life. While he was here and probably in his 60s, he could probably, 
Well, I have no doubt that he could probably whip me if he wanted to, but these giants, that was another story. He was certainly taken up against these giants, and here he grows faint. Then we read of this one giant, we, we read his name Ishbabanab, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels. That's about seven and a half pounds. That's just interestingly enough, that's half the weight of Goliath's spear. Okay, Goliath's spear was twice that weight. It was 600 shekels back in 1 Samuel 17. But here it's seven and a half pounds when he was bearing a new sword and he thought he could kill David. He sees a chance, he sees David's weakness and he makes a move on David to try and overtake David. But verse 17 tells us, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and he killed him. The men of David swore to him, saying, look, David, you've got to stay home from now on. You've got to stay home. You're not, you're not coming out to battle. Why not? Lest you quench the lamp of Israel. I like this because it shows something that's taking place. David has been a warrior his whole life. And now as he's coming into his latter years, he needs a little bit of help. And instead of just pushing him off to the side, instead of saying, well, he's no longer capable of being our leader, they recognize his value to the nation Israel. Notice they said to him, you need to stay home because you'll quench the lamp of Israel. What does a lamp do? It lights a path, doesn't it? It guides a way. It shows the way. In other words, what they're saying to David is, David, you're too valuable for us to have out here in the field because otherwise we need you back at, at home, back in the palace to show us which way to go. You're the one that's representing us. You're the one that's lighting our path. You're illuminating the direction for the nation Israel. And we need you. We can't take a chance of losing you. We can handle the battles out here. We've got this cover, but we need you back there. Now, interestingly enough, David would say in the very next chapter, in chapter 22 of verse 29, he would say to the Lord, for you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. So as the people of Israel recognize David as the one leading them, as a good leader does, David recognizes it's the Lord that's leading me. I'm really just, in other words, David says, I'm really not leading at all. I'm just allowing the Lord to lead me. I'm really not, it's not my ideas, it's not my direction. I'm seeking the Lord on what I should do, on the direction that I should take, on the way that I should go. So as the nation of Israel says, you are a lamp, David, we need you. David says in the very next chapter, verse 29, you are my lamp, O Lord. You are my lamp, O Lord. And that works the same way in our life, by the way. You know, it comes, talk about husbands leading families, talk about bosses leading businesses, teachers leading classrooms, all of the, the leadership responsibilities. If you have a leadership role of whatever, whatever it is, whether it's a mother over children, whatever it is, the Lord needs to be the one that's leading you. You see, sometimes the burden of a leader can become so great because they're not following the Lord. The greatest thing a leader can do is follow God. Allow the Lord to lead you and you will, be, you will be, then become a better leader because you'll just be simply going in the direction the Lord has called you to go in. You won't be wasting energy. You won't be wasting resources. You won't be wasting things. Might even be good things, but the Lord hasn't called you or led you in that direction. So the nation Israel here in our first battle, we see they have, this is battle number one. I have it labeled in my Bible. They have victory over the, over the giant. Now, I also need to remind you of something. This is pretty interesting. David was fighting giants as a youth. And here at the end of his life, what's he doing? He's fighting giants. It's not done. He's been fighting giants his whole life. He's been fighting Philistines his whole life. When we studied 1 Samuel 17, we talked about Goliath being a picture of sin in our own life. And how we had to slay the Goliaths in our life. Slay the sins in our life. David's still fighting giants here later in life. Now here's the really cool thing. Not only is he still fighting giants... Look what happens. As he grows faint, one of his men come alongside of him. Abishai comes alongside of him, and he takes over. 
So here's the beautiful thing. Not only is David fighting giants, he's taught other people to fight giants. Not only is he living the way that he's supposed to be living, he's taught other people to live that way as well. That would be the same direction that Paul would give Timothy in, uh, in 2 Timothy. Find other men, find faithful men and pour into them what you know so that they can teach other people, Timothy, or Paul would say to Timothy. Find faithful men. So David's been faithful at doing this and we're going to see that he's taught other men to fight giants as well. Look at verse uh, 18. This is battle number two. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistines at Gob. Then Serbakai, the Hushakite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. That's all you get. You kill a giant, you get one verse. One verse in the Bible, 21 verse 18. It, it's, it's because you nobody could pronounce his name. That, that's why. He only gets one verse there. Can you, if, I got a, if I got to kill a giant like Goliath, I'd want more than one verse. But no, do you see the picture there? This is somebody else, one, another one of David's men that is fighting a giant and being victorious. Mm-hmm. David taught somebody else how to do it. He showed them, he demonstrated to them, he's led them faithfully, and now they're coming behind him and they're doing the same thing that he was doing. Look at battle number three in verse 19. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines where Elhanan, the son of Jeroboam, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, some people think this is actually referring to David himself. I don't particularly think so. But what we see here is a third battle taking place where there's another giant who's referred to as the brother of Goliath. If you remember back in 1 Samuel 17, Goliath's spear was also described as being like a weaver's beam. And here's a third giant that's, that's then killed again by the nation Israel. And then look at verse 20, battle number four. Yet again, there was war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. Isn't that funny? Six fingers. I can't help but think of first grade math class. Hey, no fair. He's got six fingers to count on. I mean, I just, I just can see him going, two, three, four, five, six. It just doesn't make sense to me. See, my mind works funny like that. Verse 21, so when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. So this is David's nephew. David's brother, Shimea, had a son. His son killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. These four were born to the giant in Gath. They fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Is it better to have one giant killer or four? How cool is that David was able to take what was pa- he was passionate about and then put it in the hearts of other men. And here as we come to the end of David's life, as his life is winding down, he's still doing battle, but even greater than that, now his men below him are going out having victory over the giants, over the enemy, just like David was. Oh, don't we pray that for our children. Don't we pray that for our children? You see, sometimes a parent can have victory, but they never pass on the ability, they never pass on the knowledge, they never pass on the wisdom to the children to have the victory. David's faithfully done that. He's passed it on, and they are now having, his men are now having victory over the giant. All right. Now we come to verse, or chapter 22. Chapter 22 is pretty much, with, with a little bit of exceptions, the same as Psalm 18. Some people think that chapter 22 or Psalm 18 uh, was, was written before David and, and Bathsheba, that whole incident with David and Bathsheba. 
Uh, that's how most commentators would suggest, but I also think it could be written afterwards because that was a, a failure in David's life, but we didn't see, he seemed to recover from that, and he seemed to continue, and he seemed to, uh, you know, to, to repent from that, and there was consequences that he lived out, and certainly, the, you know, the Lord said, the sword will not pass from your home, and he had those problems, but, he's, but that's the last time we see of David ever falling. He never takes another concubine, never takes another wife in the Bible, so we see him recovering from that failure uh, with, with, with David and Bathsheba and, and the killing of of Uriah and the adultery that took place there. But as we come to chapter 22, I think it's one of these great passages of scripture. It's just a passage of praise. It's just a passage where you're going to get to look into David's heart. And we know that he's a man after God's own heart because the scriptures tell us that. But we get to kind of look into his heart and we're going to see how did he communicate with God? What words did he use? What did he say? Did you ever go to the Lord in prayer and, and like you really don't know what to say? Lord, I really like you. I really, really like you and, and really thank you. And, and, you know, really, really, David is going to give us words to express the way that he's feeling. And in doing so, we can learn from that also. Mm-hmm. So let's, t- let's look what he says in chapter 22. Then David spoke to the Lord The words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. As I said, some people think this was the day that he became the king of Israel. Some people think it was written later. Doesn't really matter exactly when it was written. Let's look at what he said. He says this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior, you have saved me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. David starts out and he says, the Lord is my rock. Now I want you to notice all the mys in there. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my strength, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. Notice all the mys in there. That's important for us to notice right off the bat. Because it's possible for you to change that and say, well, I, I, the Lord is a rock. Yeah, the Lord is a refuge. The Lord, no, no. Is the Lord your rock? The, here the scripture is very clear. David is saying the Lord is my rock. He's not just a rock. He's not somebody else's rock. He is my rock. What does it mean by it when it says he's my rock? He's my foundation. It's what I, it, my life is built on the rock. That's what David's saying. He's my rock. He, everything I'm doing, the foundation of my life is built on the Lord. What about us? What about you? Is the Lord your rock? Are the decisions you make for life, the places that you work, the places that you want to live, the places where you want to go to church and where you minister, is, is he the foundation of what you're doing? Is he the very, very foundation of your existence? Or is he just something that we do occasionally on Sundays and when it's convenient for us? Is, is the, is, do we see that as the, the God is my rock? Everything I'm building my life upon him, or is it I'm just building a, a, an, a, an addition with, with my life on? He's part of my addition. David's saying, no, my life is built upon him. He's my rock. What's it mean when he says my fortress? What's a fortress? It's a safe place, right? It's a place that you can run to. It's a place that when you're having a bad day, it's when things aren't going right, when there's a place, it's, it's, it's where I go hide. It's where I know that I can be safe from the enemy. It's where I know I can, I can get respite. I can get away from life for a little while if I need to. But he also says he's my deliverer. He delivers me. He delivers me from my enemies. The God of my strength. 
David says, God is my strength. He's the God of my strength. He's the source of my strength. He, have you ever done anything where you had to rely on the strength of God to do it? Where you've come to a place where you are physically worn out, you have no more strength left, and you go, Lord, you need to strengthen me for this. When you get to that place, if you've never been there, I encourage you to find a way to get there because it's a really cool thing. When you get to that place where you go, I cannot go anymore. I can't take it. The burden's too heavy. I cannot take one more step forward. Lord, would you strengthen me? And he does. It's amazing. It's amazing how he'll come behind us and he'll strengthen us. Now, I got to encourage you. When that happens, you've got to take the necessary step. You've got to take the steps to do what you're going to do. You have to put it into action. He'll strengthen you as you step forward. He's not going to strengthen you as you sit on the couch. Okay? So you've got to take the steps, but he will come alongside of you and he will strengthen you to accomplish whatever that thing is that you have to do or whatever that thing that he's called you to do. But notice he also says, he's my shield. He's my shield. God's my shield. What is a shield for? Protection, right? It's what the warrior would hold up to block what? arrows rocks stones anything from the enemy that was come on it was the protection what do you hold up when the enemy starts attacking what do you hold up you hold up the scriptures yeah that's what you should be holding up you hold up the lord yeah you run to your fortress and or do you stand there and fight you hold run you, you've got a shield in the lord he's my shield he's my salvation he's my stronghold and my refuge i like that he's my stronghold and my refuge my stronghold and my refuge. What's a stronghold? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a wall that's being reinforced. It's a, it's a really strong wall. It's, it's something that the enemies, they can't get through. They can't penetrate. They can't get over top. They can't get underneath. They can't get through it. They can't knock it down. It's a stronghold. And David says, that's who the Lord is to me. Nobody can move me from behind him. I'm staying there. I'm stuck there. I'm not leaving. I'm, I'm planted there. He's my stronghold. Nobody will move me. And then he says, he's my savior. My Savior, you save me from violence. Now in David's life, he's referring to violence. He's referring to life and death situations the Lord is delivering from. And sometimes we think, you know, Lord, I wish I could really see something like that. Why, why won't you deliver me from a life or death situation? Well, you've got to get in one first. You've got you to do something. You've got you to put yourself out there. You've got to be in a place where you take a step of faith. You gotta do, maybe, maybe it's a missionary. You know, I, I love hearing the stories of missionaries when they come back because they experience things that we don't get to experience here in the States. They experience difficult situations where there is no money, there is no food, there is no protection. There's no police department to call. There's no mechanic on every corner that you can get your car fixed if it breaks down in the middle of a road somewhere. What do you do? You pray. You see, we've come, become so used to all the amenities that we have in the States that we, we forgo prayer a lot of times because we know that if my car breaks down, what do I do? I just take it to the mechanic and let him fix it. Or if I need food, what do I do? I go to Martin's and I just buy some food. There's a difference between needing food hungry and going to get some versus there is no food available and there's no money to buy it. You see, David's recognizing, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now, he's going to describe for us what a situation is like in a life or death situation. Remember, David had many of them as a warrior. Certainly when he was being chased by King Saul, Saul was trying to kill him. We know that he faced life and death situations there. And look what he says. He says, when the waves of death surrounded me, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. 
I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. David describes these situations as waves, floods, sorrows, and snares. When you think of waves, what do you think of? Pounding, relentless, right? One right after another. On the sea, bobbing to and fro. Just it never stops. It never ceases. It just continues. There's no break in it. They're watching the hurricane off the coast of Florida right now. And you, you watch the news and they pan to the pictures down there. And here comes the beaches and the waves are just beating on the beaches. You know, that, that's what's taking place. That's the waves that he's talking about. But he says waves of death. The death, the, the threats of death, the, the life or death situations, they're just never ending. And he says the floods. What do you think of when you think of floods? It's coming up slowly. It's just rising. It's just rising. All the problems, the, the floods of, what does he call it? The floods of ungodliness. Boy, we live in a culture where the floods of ungodliness are rising, aren't they? Aren't those tidal waters coming up in our culture? It's just rising. It's getting higher. It's getting higher. It's getting higher and higher. The floods of ungodliness, he says. But then he says the snares of death, the traps of death. The traps. Isn't that in our culture today? Boy, the, if we were to follow popular culture, do you think you'd find the happiness that you're looking for? The sna- the, the, you, the, there's, there's traps set out there for us. But you notice what he says. Oh, he says the sorrows of Sheol, brokenheartedness, sorrows of Sheol, they're surrounding me. David's in this place where he's getting beat by death, the floods of ungodliness, the sorrows, the snares, and look what he does. Look at verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. I called upon the Lord. What will you do in your distress? You see, we may not experience death, life and death the way that he did physically. Maybe it's an emotional stress for you. Maybe it's a burden at work. Maybe it's a family problem. Maybe it, whatever's going on that's causing the stress in our life. What is it that causes distress in your life? We hear that David says, in my distress, what will you do in your distress? Where will you turn? Where will you go? David says, I'm in my distress. And chances are, I don't think that my distress has ever been as bad as his distress. You know, when I just look at our two lives and I compare them, you know, I mean, I, I really can't say the waves of death surrounded me. You know, and I was, on a, I was a police officer on a SWAT team in South Florida. The waves of death never surrounded me. I might have faced death, but not that I would ever describe it that way. I would never say that. The floods of ungodliness, I could say we see that in our culture. But he says in his, in, his, uh, in his distress, he calls upon the Lord. What will you do in your time of distress? And don't minimize your time of distress either. I think that's important because whatever it is that's causing stress, aren't we a you know, society filled with stress? Whatever it is that's causing your anxiety, whatever it is that causes your worry, that's really what it is. Whatever it is that's causing your lack of faith, because that's if you kind of narrow it all down, that's really what it's becoming. Whatever it is that causes that, will you call out to the Lord? Will you call? Will you run to the Lord? Notice what he says. David said, I called upon the Lord. And look at what the Lord did. I cried out to my God, and he heard my voice from his temple. And my cry entered his, entered his ears. David said, in my time of hardship, in my time of difficulty, I cried out to God, and God heard me. I know that God heard me. He, said, he writes it here. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Do you have the faith to know that God hears every prayer? I think, that if, I think there's a little bit of doubt in all of us, don't you? Do you ever pray the prayer that we kind of think, I wonder if God really cares about that prayer? Or is that just a stupid prayer? Am I just wasting my time? The answer is no. No, you're not wasting your time with prayer. 
you can never waste your time with prayer. I used to think that, you know, I had, I had some friends at one point, and uh, I, I was kind of just becoming a Christian, more or less, and they used to pray for everything. Like, everywhere we went, they prayed. Like, if we went on a bike ride, they'd be like, all right, let's pray for our bike ride. I'm like, why? And they prayed for all this kind of stuff, everywhere. Like, at first, I was kind of like, can you knock it off with the prayer stuff? Yeah, I mean, you know, can't we just, like, pray in the morning, pray at night? And, and then I realized, you know what, God really does care. And then I had kids. I started praying for their protection. And I realized I can never pray for that enough. I'm worried about them. I shouldn't be, but I am. I, I watch what they do. I watch the mistakes they make. I watch the things, the choices. I'm like, Lord, I'm praying for them. Lord, you know, use that in a good way and, and protect them and keep them safe. And, you know, the truth is that we can never pray enough. There's nothing wrong. There's no stupid prayer. If it's important to you at that moment, it's important to the Lord too. It really is. Now, there's right ways and wrong ways, but we're not going to get in that tonight. If, if there's something on your heart and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I think he wants to hear about it. I think he does. So, look what happens after David prays, verse 8. The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and he came down. With darkness under his feet, he rode upon a cherub and he flew. As he was seen upon the wings of the wind, he made darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. Now this is a little poetic. He's not saying this all happened. David is, David is, a, is, a, is a poetic guy. But here's, what I want you, here's the point I want you to take. The Lord quickly came down to meet David right where he was. In David's mind, I, this is what he sees. I'm praying, all of earth is shaken. Now look at verse 11. He rode upon a cherub. So I'm praying, all of a sudden the Lord hears it. He knows he needs to get down there quick. He calls over the fastest angel he has in heaven. He jumps on his back and he flies down there. Now that's not really what God would do. He doesn't have to do that. But that's the picture that David's getting. That's how David says, my prayer is important to God. God's doing whatever he needs to do to get to exactly where I am, to meet me right where I am at that moment. He rides down. He was seen upon the wings of the wind. Just like the wind, he zooms on down there. Look at verse 14. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. From those, who, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. So you see what's taking place. David is praying, the Lord is responding, the Lord is coming. And I want you to look at verse 17 and 18. He sent from above, and I want you to look what happens. He took me, he drew me, he delivered me. David is in a place of life or death. He's in a place where his, his anxiety is high. He's in a place where he's distressed. He calls upon the Lord. The Lord meets him right there. The Lord responds and he says, I'm going to take you out. Not only does he take me, I'm, he drew me and he delivered me from my strong enemy. So God met him there. He delivered him from the enemy. Isn't it cool that David's going back and remembering this at the end of his life? Sometimes we fail to look back on our life and remember what God's done for us. Sometimes we haven't followed the Lord enough to have him do anything for us. But I think it's real important as believers that from time to time we sit back, and if you journal, if you write, I, I don't, 
as much as I should. Occasionally I will. But I think it's important to do that. And I think it's important to go back and remember what God has done for you. If you're facing a difficult time today, remembering what God has done yesterday will help you realize who he is today. David's doing that. He's remembering. I think it also might be kind of hard for David at this point in his life. Because he just realized, I can't fight the way I used to fight. I'm more vulnerable than I used to be. I'm not the same strong warrior that I was. But as he's remembering what God's doing, he's causing him to praise God. And he says, during those difficult times, during those difficult seasons, the Lord brought me out. He drew me out. He delivered me. And he says this, for my enemies were too strong for me. In other words, I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it on my own. My en- the enemy, he delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. That means they, they were kicking me while I was down. They were, I, I was already at a low point, and here comes my enemies. They're kicking me. They confronted me. But the Lord, notice this, verse 20, at the end of verse 19, but the Lord was my support. David understood that the source of his strength came from God. Not from his training as a soldier. Not from the crown on his head as a king. Not from the respect that he had from his men. He realized that the Lord was his strength. He wasn't a self-made man in that sense. He understood God is my strength. God is the one who built me up. Why would God do that? He brought me out of into a broad place. He delivered me. Why? It's so cool. Look at verse 20, the last verse, the last part of it. Because he delighted in me. God did this for David because he delighted in him. He said, I delighted in you. David understood the relationship, that God's relationship with David. Do you know that God delights in you also? Do you know that God delights in us? Would, would the Lord do this for us? Sure he would. Sure he would. Now, I need to just pause for a second because when I cover this this way, you might think, well, it happens like this. How long was David running from Saul? About 14 years, give or take a few. Okay? So when we read this and you go, I cried out to God, deliver me, God. God says, I will, just not today. No, God, deliver me. I will, just not this year. I will, just not this decade. You go, Lord, God, Rob, I don't want to wait 14 years. I don't know what God's plan is for your life. I don't know what, he's, what you're waiting to be delivered from. Just keep crying out. Keep pursuing. You know, he's working. That's what I do know. Because I'm confident when I can say that he delights in you. He delights in you. He might be teaching us something. He might be going, allowing us to go through a difficult situation to, to learn something. But look at verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God, for all his judgments were before me as of the, his statutes. I did not depart from them. I will also be blameless before him. I kept myself from my iniquity, Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me, rewarded me. That's what it means. According to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. You see, that's why some people believe this was written before the whole Bathsheba thing. But if you think that was the only sin in David's life, and for those that you don't know, David had an affair with Bathsheba, and to cover it up, he killed her husband to try to make it look good, who was, who was somewhat loosely, he, he, he was one of his top men and one of his fighting men. And then it turned out they had a son, the son died. But... 
in order to, so as he writes this section, as he talks about his righteousness, as he talks about how the Lord's rewarding, some people would say, no, no, this had to be written before that. But don't for a moment think that that was the only mistake that David made in his life. That was the only one, that, that was the one that was recorded. That's when we look at it and go, yeah, well, I'm not as bad as David was. That's, that's not me. I'm not quite as bad as David was. But let me ask you this question. And I think this is an important one to ask. Don't ask yourself, don't, don't say to yourself when you hear that about David, about murder and an affair, don't say to yourself, I'm not as bad as David. Ask yourself this question, were you as good as David? You see, sometimes we can like to focus on the negative of David's life, on the failures of David's life, but would you ever compare yourself to the, to the successes or the positives of David's life? What do you mean, Rob? Have you slayed a giant in your life? What about your own giants in your life? Have you slayed them? Have you, have you, are you continuing to do battle? Have you finished your life well? Have you, have, you, have you endured the consequences of your sin faithfully? Have you done what God's called you to do? Have you lived your life out completely on what God's asked you to do? You see, we like to relate to him on the negative side, going, yeah, he's human just like me. Have you written the Psalms? Have you written poetry to God? Have you written the stuff that's been written and recorded about you? It's, it's phenomenal for David. You know, we like to compare the negative, but what about the positive? The chances are... We look at David and we go, well, I'm not as bad as he was. Well, we're not as good as he was either. We, don't, we haven't achieved as much for the Lord as he achieved either. Not that we should be out trying to do it in our, in our own flesh, but look at David's successes as well. Don't diminish his failures. And when he talks here about the rewarding according to his righteousness, he's recognizing that God is his salvation. He's already made that clear. He said that earlier, God is my salvation. So he's recognizing it's from God. But he says something in verse 24 I think is important. He says, I kept myself from my iniquity. I kept myself from my iniquity. And I wrote this down in my Bible. Are you keeping yourself from iniquity? Are we keeping ourselves from sin? You know, here's the question that really kind of hits home with us. Or do we tend to be a little eh, culturally relevant, we'll call it. Well, we, we kind of just follow what the culture says. We kind of just go along with what, what, whatever seems to be popular of the day. You see, when David said he was keeping himself from iniquity, and I asked the question, are you keeping yourself from iniquity? I asked that to myself. It's not to you guys. I'm asking that to myself. If it, if it rings true in your heart, then so, so let it be. But that's something that I need to be faithful on. That's something that you need to be faithful on. Are you doing what you, are you keeping yourself from iniquity? Or do we let little bits of sin, little bits of things creep into our lives that just cause us to, to backslide, to landslide, to, you know, when, when there's a little bit of sin that starts to creep in, how long will you follow it? How far will you take it? How much, how much of it will you, will you in, in, enjoy or endure or, or, or play with before you go, no, no, I won't go that far. You see, I think the standard needs to be righteousness you know certainly we're made righteous by the blood of christ but we also need to be holy and pure we need to guard ourselves against sin are we are we doing that as, as believers as followers do we set up a wall to i'm not going to allow this into my life or do we tend to just kind of get on the edge and see how close can we get to sinning without really sinning how, how can we really, well, I can look at this on Facebook, or I can do that on Facebook, or, or I, can, I can think this thought as long as I don't do it. I think that sometimes we dance dangerously close with that line. Because you know what happens, the closer that you get to the line, it's only a matter of time before you slip and fall over the edge. It's only a matter of time before you go one step further, before the excitement gets turned away and you just take that extra step, and before you know it, you're going to find yourself in a place that you never wanted to be. I think as believers, we need to make a, make a, take a step to say, I'm going to protect myself from iniquity. 
I'm going to keep myself from iniquity. And as I say iniquity, here's the thing. You all know what the sin is in your life where your temptations come from. And the sin and the temptations in your life might be different, probably are, than sin and temptations in my life or the person sitting next to you. This is a personal question. Are you protecting yourself from those temptations, that sin in your life? Or are you, are you entertaining it to a certain point? Maybe we'll entertain it to a point where we just won't get caught. We'll just, we'll just, we'll, just a little bit, just occasionally. You know, I'm here to say that we need to be and I need to be and you need to be like David where we keep ourselves from iniquity. Not saying we'll ever be perfect because we have the grace of God. But remember what I say. Grace is for falling, not for jumping. We need to be very, very careful when, we, when we're protecting ourselves from iniquity. David said, I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. How many of us could say that? Lord, just reward me according to my righteousness. Whew. You see, I know that we have a sinful body. I know that we have our minds go all kinds of places during the day. I know that we fall short every day. And for that, we have grace and we have repentance and we have forgiveness. But I think sometimes we focus too much on sin and not enough on righteousness. I think we focus on sometimes what we're doing wrong and not enough pursuing righteousness. You see, if I pursued righteousness 24 hours a day, I wouldn't have necessarily sin nearly as much. Neither would you. What are we pursuing? What are we really going after? Sometimes I think Satan's best ploy is to get us focused on our sin. All we do is focus on what we're doing wrong. All we do is focus on our failures. All we do is focus on this. If I would just, and you would just pursue righteousness, all that stuff would take care of itself. If you could pursue righteousness every second of the day, you probably wouldn't sin. Now, I realize that's a little bit impossible. But where do we set the standard? Will we take those steps and pursue that? Will we really be people who say, yes, I don't, I'm going to pursue righteousness? That's what David's saying. Now look at verse 26. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. You want mercy? Be merciful. Blameless man, you'll show yourself blameless. Pure. Notice he says... With the pure, you'll show yourself pure. With the devious, you'll show yourself shrewd. You see, God's not, you know, God's not capable of being undevious, so to speak. It's not in his nature. He's going to show himself shrewd. Notice it says the humble. You will save the humble people. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, I think of in Proverbs 3 and 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. Humble, proud, humility. Your eyes are on the haughty. Haughty is pride. What does that mean? I think as a, as, a, as a people, that's something we need to guard against is pride. You see, a, a humble person doesn't really know they're humble. It's just who they are. If someone tells you how humble they are, what do you think they're telling you? <laughs> let me tell you how humble I am. I am so humble, let me tell you what I did last week. That's not, hum that's not humility at all, is it? That's me being prideful about me pre pretending to be humble, but I'm trying to tell you that I'm humble. and That's not hum humility at all. Now back down to verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of God is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. 
Notice what he says. He says, God, you're my lamp. You're my lamp, O Lord. You're the one that's enlightening my darkness. You're the one that's lighting my way. I can do anything with you, Lord. I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Look at verse 31. As for God, his way is perfect. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is what? Proven. It's proven. The word of the Lord is proven. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all. Don't forget the rest of the verse. All who what? Who trust in him. He's not a shield for those who don't trust in him. He's a shield for all who trust in him. God's ways are perfect. His word is proven. Do we believe that? We say we believe it, but do we live it? Do you really know that God's ways are perfect? Do you really believe in your heart so no matter what you're going through, the difficult situation you're in, do you really know God's doing it, his way is perfect? As a follower of Jesus Christ, as I walk through life, as you walk through life, you come up against circumstances, you come up against difficult situations. Remember, David's reflecting on his past here, his running from Saul. He was backslidden, right? He went over and joined the Philistine army for a couple of years, tried to fight against the Israelites. God preserved him through that. But, God, but David now says, God, your ways are perfect. Your ways are perfect. And your word is not only true, it's proven. It's proven. He's a shield to all who trust in him. Look at verse 32. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Who is God except the Lord? Who is the rock except our God? God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. That word means mature. It makes it the way it's supposed to be. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. Sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under my feet so my feet did not slip. You see, the Lord, David's recognizing what the Lord's done for him. As he looks back over his life and he sees God is my strength. God, you're the one who's brought me back. You're the one who's made my way right. You're the one who's doing that. You've made my feet like the feet of a deer. You've set my feet in high places, Lord. You're the one that you've just enlarged the path. On the difficult times, you just made the path wider so I could walk on it. You just made it wider for me. He didn't keep me off the path. He just made me be able to go through the path. He just carried me across it. He's given you the shield of my salvation. Look at verse 38. I've pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have destroyed them and wounded them so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with the strength of the, for the battle. You have subdued under those who rose, again me, rose against me. You have also given me the, the, the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets, and I spread them out. <laughs> kind of relentless there, aren't you, David? You stomped them good, didn't you? But you see, these are the guys, that, these are the people, the enemies that were coming against David. And David's saying, Lord, you gave me the ability to overcome them. Verse 44, you've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You've also delivered me from the strivings of my people. You've kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. In other words, David's saying, Lord, you've made me a very powerful man. 
You've made me, you've given me power that I could not have got on my own. You've made me, you've made it so the enemies fear me. You've put me in the position of being a king over the nation of Israel. This is so important in his life. He really could become prideful, conceited, arrogant, puffed up, much of what King Saul was when we saw when we studied him. He really could be that way, but he's not. Instead, he's doing something so important that we must not forget. He's recognizing God's influence in his life. Do you recognize, do I recognize, that my successes are given by the Lord? It's so, so important to give him credit for it. So often we think, well, no, you know, I just did this on my own. No, everything that we have comes from God. If, we, if, we, if we're really smart, that intelligence comes from God. He's the one that created us. You know, if, if we have a gift in music or whatever our gift is or whatever, our, or whatever gift, we, it comes from the Lord. Everything we have, whoever we are, there's no, really no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. It, it all comes from the Lord. And David is taking time to do what? He's giving God the glory. He's given God the honor, given God the praise that he deserves. Let's look at these last few verses. As David continues praising his God uh, that delivered him. Verse 47, the Lord lives. Blessed be the rock. Let God be exalted. The rock of my salvation. The foundation of my salvation. The fo- blessed be the foundation. Let God be exalted. It's God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me above those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. He's the tower of salvation to, this, to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. I love those closing verses that just the praise that rings out of David's heart. The Lord lives. Blessed be the, my, notice again, my rock, my foundation. Let God be the one that is exalted. Don't fail to exalt God in your life. Don't fail to give God glory, give God credit, give God, give God the praise for the things that are happening in your life. He subdues the people under me. It's God that's doing the subduing. He delivers me from my enemies. It's God that's doing the delivering. You lift me up. It's God that's lifting David up, who ri- those who rise against me. You've delivered me from the violent man. It's God that's delivering. And he says in verse 50, I'll give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. I'll give thanks to you. Don't fail to give thanks to God, both for the personal things that he's doing in your life, plus what he's doing, you know, plus, plus salvation, plus the, the, the cross, the work on the cross. Don't forget to, don't, don't be a Christian who's not thankful. We, I think so often that we get so many blessings, we forget to give the thanks that's due him. We just kind of take it for granted, right? We, I'm saved. I'm going, to, I'm going to heaven someday. Yeah, that's, that's kind of great, right? No, we, we've minimized that miracle. The fact that you're not, and I, you and I aren't going to, if, if you are a believer in Christ, and only if you're a believer, that you will not face judgment for your sins, for your wrongdoings, that's more than just a, a casual, eh, I'm saved. That is something to give praise for. That is something to give God glory for, that we don't have to face for our, so tomorrow if you blow it, and you can repent and be forgiven of that, that should cause praise and thanksgiving in your heart. Start your prayers with thanksgiving and praise. I would encourage you that when you pray, praise. It'll help give thanks. It'll help put you in the right mindset, the right perspective to pray. I sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation and his king. And it says he shows, you see, David, 
David recognizes, although we saw him earlier claiming his righteousness, look what he says. This is why he's righteous and shows mercy to his anointed. David's righteousness because of God's mercy is what he's saying. David recognizes that God's mercy is something that he needs. To David, his descendants, forevermore. That's us, all the way down the line. As we come to these last couple of chapters in David's life, and I look back over all we've covered, all the way back from you know, 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, we've seen so many successes of David, so many good choices. We've seen a few bad. I could only pray that my life, that your life, could be as effective for the kingdom of God as David's life was. Yeah, we can identify with his failures. Yes, he wasn't perfect. It just shows that God chooses imperfect people to do his work. We understand that. We see that in the apostles as well. The question that we have to ask ourselves, will you follow this example? Will you push the iniquity out of your life? Will you give God the glory? Will you praise him, even if it's a difficult situation? Will you pray to him and watch him respond to your needs? You see, I pray that tonight and as we cover this, and I know it was a long section tonight. Usually we do a lot shorter section. But I pray that as we cover this, you can see David's heart of praise. We can see his difficulty. We can see his successes. But through it all, it left him praising God. And I pray that that would be our heart too. Father, would you give us a heart of praise? Much like David's, Lord. Would we have a heart that wants to give you glory and honor for all the things that you do? Or would we not be prideful people, stuck-up people, people who think that we've achieved something on our own? But instead, may we be humble people who recognize the power of our God and the power of our God in us. Lord, so... As we study tonight, would you take those words that are important to us tonight? Would you take your word, you promise that it will not return void. Would you put it in our hearts? May we not just take it and forget about it, but may we think about it this week, through the weekend. And may you continue to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.